0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Squid and the Ultimate Leaf Fan, brought to you by the Hockey News. With over two million dedicated readers, the Hockey News, established in 1947, is the authoritative source of hockey and the number one publication in North America. With an ever-growing podcast network and video database, on top of an already established print and digital brand, the Hockey News is there to cover all major hockey stories from around the world. Visit thn.com/deal to get the best value on a subscription to the Hockey News. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. And with me, as always, my winger, Ricky Squid 5. Squid, how's things going? Now, let me ask you before I get started. Have you got a date for your release of your book? We didn't have one last week when we talked to the listeners.
1: November 17th.
0: November 17th. Folks, scratch that one in your calendar and remember it. I don't. But, but you know what? Remember October 6th first because that's when mine comes out. Okay, yeah. so there's... <laughs> There is the shameless self-promotion for both of us here to get the show underway, but both our books out in the next month and a half. So we're pretty happy about that. So otherwise, uh, you know, Squid, we've got a pretty decent guest joining us here today. Uh, I mean, this guy has been a presence in the game since 1975, not only as a player, but as a, now in, in the coaching ranks. And I'm referring obviously to, to Bruce Boudreaux.
1: Yeah. Oh, I mean, well, first of all, Gabby's just a down-to-earth great guy. Uh, you know, he would even tell you himself that maybe he screwed up a little bit early, you know, in junior yeah. and early in his career. And that derailed his career a little bit as far as NHL was concerned. But but he kept persevering. And, uh, you know, the the thing I loved about him was that even at 37, 38 years old, playing in the American Hockey League, yeah. he still thought, as the, the, the movie Dumb and Dumber would say, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> and, and he believed that. And, and I think that's great. You know, I mean, uh, he never gave up.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I'm with you on that. I mean, I think that our listeners are really gonna enjoy listening to Gabby, who comes, who comes by his nickname, honestly, by the way. I mean, they say I talk a lot, but I mean, I think he's got me just by touch here. And, he just loves to talk hockey, and that's what we're so passionate about and why we love this guy. And, you know, hey, listen, he may not remember what he had for lunch, but ask him about a goal he scored or assisted on in 1982, and he'll tell you in detail exactly what happened. Well, isn't that the same with all of us? <laughs> that's true, too. You remember
1: all the good things, okay? Like I wouldn't know what I had for lunch, but I, I know what I did on on uh, 18 holes. This <laughs>
0: So, well, anyway, I mean, that's coming up in a few minutes here, but first, a couple of thoughts I'd like to bounce off you, and I'll, I'll get this underway. Just watching the game last night, it looks like Tampa seems destined, and the Isles, while they played their hearts out last night I and mean, tried wholeheartedly and give them A for big effort, the upfront punch and that sort of secondary scoring that lack of seems to be catching up to them, it looks like to me.
1: Uh, yeah, I think
0: so. And uh,
1: I mean, I, I thought the Islanders actually outplayed. I mean, I've watched two-plus periods, uh, a little bit of the third. I thought the Islanders carried the play for the most part, but Tampa's such a lethal team. They've got like four lines that can score goals. They've got defense that can jump into the play and and score goals, make plays. I mean, they are very deep, very, very deep team. And then, you know, if you get by all that, you got that big – Russian Vasilevsky back there who's just unbelievable. Like, I mean, this guy is uh, – he's one of the best goalies I've seen to come along in, in quite some time.
0: Right. He makes the saves he's supposed to make, and that's the key. And yeah. that's kind of been the knock on our guy in Toronto. I will say this before I mention that we get to the Toronto part of which we always have to, obviously, and it's usually with some sort of criticism like the rest of uh, Twitter where we try to keep it friendly. Matthew Barzell, though, for the Islanders, is certainly every shift this guy's stock seems to be rising. And, uh, I mean, what a player he's become. Oh, he's become
1: a, an unbelievable player. And, uh, you know, I mean, his, his skating ability, his edge work, the way he's able to turn quickly and get away from people, it, it's, uh, it's amazing. And uh, he sees the ice extremely well. He sees everything around him. Uh you know, there, there's not very many guys that have that ability. Uh, and when you do and you can skate like him and you got edge work like he has, uh, that I mean, that, that is you put all that together and you get one heck of a hockey part.
0: Well, and he's one of those guys where the puck just follows him around. And that, that's not by accident. That, that's knowing where to go and the puck shows up with him. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with you 100% on that.
0: And, you know, I look at a guy, well, and look at, I mean, perfect example on a winning goal last night. I mean, that usually happens to Toronto teams, but that puck just slides through the whole zone and right to the stick of the wrong guy for the Islanders and the right guy for Tampa and Kucherov. I mean, that puck, uh, it was in the net before anybody even turned their head.
1: Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, that must have went through five or yeah. six players. It was unbelievable from one side to the other side of the net, and there had to be five guys in the way that it went through. I mean, so it was a little bit lucky, of course, but uh, like you said, it got on the stick of probably the wrong guys as far as
0: the Islanders. Are concerned. <laughs> <laughs> he, buried,
1: but, he, he buried it.
0: <laughs> and the elite players, the puck shows up around them, and again, yeah. it's not an accident. He, again... So uh, You look at him,
1: you look at the play he made on that two-on-one when he scored in game one, Yeah, where he turned his stick over so the puck would go up in the air and go to the other guy, and then he drove to the net and got the pass back. Good point. That, that wasn't by accident. He did that on purpose to make sure that puck flipped over to, to the other guy that was going wide, and then he drove the net. So, uh, incredible talent.
0: Uh, it is this, and and playing at the level these guys play it. I mean, that's just you know, just it's just, just it's remarkable to watch this. And which brings us to our guys. And uh, you know, here we are with our weekly comments. Not, at least we've been pretty quiet on the trade front this week. But Freddie's name keeps coming up. A bundle of goalies available either by trade or a free agency or expiring contracts. So there's going to be some movement. And I think you know. It, maybe a change is good for him. Maybe a change is good for the team. You don't want to blame him because it's certainly not him because the one thing that's become evidently clear watching these four remaining teams is that Toronto has a lot of work to do to compete at this level. I mean, it's almost like climbing a ladder where every step higher takes more wind out of you. And I I think we still have a ways to go.
1: I I couldn't agree with you more. And I I think it has to be on the back end and, Not just the back end, but the whole team playing better defense in their own zone. They're not a very good team in their own zone, unfortunately. And, you know, part of that is, yes, they're a little bit thin on defense. Um, They don't have shut down defensemen like a lot of teams that are still in the playoffs. Uh, But it's got to be a team effort, too. The forwards have to come back. I know they love to blow the zone and make those long passes, but you know, gosh, you, you can't leave until you get the puck a- and you get it out of the zone or someone has complete control of it. And then maybe you can blow the zone and, and look for that yeah. long pass. But far too often, players are leaving the zone a little early. Uh, a lot of times they're they're in the right position, but then all of a sudden, two guys will go to the same guy and then that'll leave a two-on-one somewhere. So I, I wouldn't blame Freddie uh, wow. that much. The only yeah. thing I will say is he hasn't won a round in the playoffs for the Maple Leafs yet, and that might be the only reason why they potentially might move him.
0: Well, but, and he has that sort of penchant for letting in a goal, a soft goal at the wrong time. Every goalie does it. Every, every goalie does, but – It's all about timing.
1: It is, and
0: the question is, can they get someone
1: back that's as good or better. And whether it's trading them for somebody that's equal or better, just for the sake of making a change, or if they could sign one of the uh, ton of free agent goalies that are out there that are very, very good, um, you know, remains to be seen. I, you know, certainly I I don't blame Freddie, but when you have him won in four years, in the first round something has to give and maybe a change of scenery for him would be great maybe a change of scenery in in the leaf net would be good for the players up front
0: yeah and again it certainly will not be any shortage of takers or players if when if his name is officially out there for sale so uh we will again as always watch with real gentle interest and see how things shape up so I think without further ado, we're going to turn it over to our guest and listen to what Mr. Boudreaux has to say, who's been very insightful. We're going to talk about um, uh, the front end of his career and uh, we'll see how everybody enjoys that. So enjoy everyone. And we'll be back to you shortly. Squid on the show today, our guest has been playing and coaching at the pro level since 1975 after an illustrious junior career, two Memorial Cups, a scoring championship, won a Calder Cup as a coach. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer in the AHL, Coach of the Year in the NHL, won a President's Cup. Uh, we'd be here all day going through all his uh, accomplishments. But I guess I'll just sort of preface it by saying this, that, you know, for, for somebody who is, does something that they love and do it for their whole life and do it from cradle to grave are usually called lifers. Well, this guy joining us today, his picture would be in the dictionary beside lifer and none other than one of your ex-teammates, Bruce Gabby Boudreau. Gabby, how's it going today?
2: It's going good. Going good. Golfed all morning, and now I'm here with you guys this afternoon. It's good.
0: Well, well speaking of golf, uh, well, you got one of your ex-teammates here, uh, you know, Squid. Yeah, you guys used to have some um, interesting matches up at Meadowbrook, just north of Toronto in the old days, didn't you?
2: Well, when, when I was living in Scarborough, and Rick... Joined the team. He was the only other guy living in Scarborough. Everybody else was in Mississauga. So I talked him into joining Meadowbrook with us for a couple of years, and uh, we had a lot of golf games together. It's great.
0: You got anything to add to that? Yeah, so, we huh?
1: did. It was uh, it was a blast. And actually, I played uh, played that golf course, Gabby. I think. Oh, my! I, I want to say two years ago, and boy, have the, has it changed. I mean, it is a fabulous golf course. I mean, com, not that it wasn't when we played it, but they've really done a great job of upgrading it, and uh, the greens are extremely fast, and uh, it, it's really, really a, a nice golf course now.
2: I loved it, except I lost so much money on that golf course, <laughs> I don't want to go back. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, so now Gabby, I obviously spent some time inside watching hockey these days. Uh how are the play playoffs shaping up for you so far from what you've seen?
2: You know what, I, I'm pretty excited about the whole thing. Uh um uh you know what, I never knew what it was gonna be like the without the fans, but if you watch it now, as before you they started coming on, you don't even notice. They're playing so hard, it's so intense, other than the the sound of the, the fans uh, and the home team cheering when you're scoring as loud as they can cheer. Mm-hmm. I think the games have been great. Um, I think the the quality or the level of play has gotten better as it's gone on because they're getting in better shape you know, they're now in playoff shape. So uh, everything has gone real well um, for me. Um, it's a it's a you know I mean most of the teams I've coached against and you sit there and you and you you take it from a coach's position rather than a fan's position. But uh, I've, lo- I've loved every night watching it because it gives us something to do. Any
1: surprises? Let me ask you a question ahead. on last night's game. Uh, I, I thought Dallas physically manhandled Vegas. And as a coach, how much did they miss Reeves last well, night? Well,
2: they missed them an awful lot. And, and – uh, because Reeves can comes out there, and you know when you get the sheriffs in town, uh, you back up a little bit, and that's what Reeves commands the kind of respect. But uh, I think they did a, you know, Rick Bonus, they did a great job. Their coaching staff of of playing like when Vegas played Vancouver, um, they never got hit once. Maybe yeah. in the whole series. So when Jamie Ben came out in those first two shifts yeah. and started running everybody, it was like Vegas is going, "Whoa, we're in a different kind of game now. This is this is crazy." And I don't think they ever recovered. I think they will recover. Yeah. Uh, but they they were taken a little bit by surprise, and uh, all the kudos to Dallas from last night's game.
0: So any surprises you've seen so far? The way things are shaped up with the four remaining teams.
2: Well, with the four remaining teams, um, uh, the one thing it, you really notice I do as a coach is that they're all four-line teams. Um, and they can roll over guys in four lines all the time. And, uh, like, I mean, Colorado was great, but, you know, when you, when push came to shove, they were a two-line team. Um, uh, Vancouver was a two-line team in the end. These guys – they can, you know, Dallas as well, because their fourth line is their checking line and plays more most nights than the Jamie Benn line. So, I mean, things uh, – uh, this is what I've noticed. I mean, and, you know, Vegas, they just keep going and the Islanders just keep going and they play the same way all the time. It's interesting to watch.
1: Well, well it is. It, mm. It's funny you brought uh, – that's an interesting point, um, but if you notice too, I don't know what you notice Gabby, but you look at the Stanley Cup champs last year, St. Louis. You look at the four remaining teams in the playoffs right now. Yes, they have skill, they have speed, but they're big and they play that way. And mm-hmm. unless, you know, like just speed and skill alone is is not going to win you a Stanley Cup. And no. you look at, you look at the four remaining teams, their defense are all big. They can all move the puck, they can skate with it, and they can make plays.
2: I agree with you 100%. You can be very fast, and if you're small, you'll get through the regular season. Yeah. But big and fast is a great uh, combination. Like the Caps, when they won it, nobody realized how fast they were, but they're all huge. You know, they were all big players. Every, You know, these big guys in this two-month play, uh, tournament, uh, they've got to be able to withhold a lot of um, uh, pressure. And, and especially in today's game, because in the playoffs, you never play back-to-backs. This year, they're playing backs-to-backs. Mm-hmm. This year, in, instead of winning around and having four days off to prepare for the next team, you got one day off. So you're just playing. So the, the big and strong and fast guys are usually the ones that end up on top.
0: Well, it's, 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 it's certainly shaping up to be really exciting. Uh, hockey fans are very excited about this. And we got, uh, you know, it's coming right to the crux of it. So, again, we can't wait to see what follows. And, again, there's second round tonight. Uh, so, see what happens here. But I guess one of the things we're going to talk about on this show, we love, Gabby, we love nicknames. And it's something that we really, really, really like to talk about on this show. So, for some of our younger viewers out there or listeners that are out there, how did you, who gave you the nickname gabby or how did it come up and it sounds like it's pretty uh obvious why
2: well yeah i got a big mouth but i mean <laughs> it uh, it was it was 1969 i know exactly when it was i mean um i was playing junior b and back in toronto in those days uh the city was so big and there's no cell phone service or what have you when you left your team in march or april you didn't see your a lot of your friends Till, or you're playing hockey friends till um, September when you're trying out. And so the first day at camp, I wouldn't shut up. I was saying, and Pat Riley, who was the trainer, said, God, you're an awful Gabby kind of guy. And he called me Gabby the whole day, and then it started catching on, and eventually it is what it is right now. I can't get away from it.
0: Well, it's uh, hey. Listen, you could be called worse things. I can tell yeah. you that. That's for sure. <laughs> we can all be. Oh, we can all be thankful for that. So, now you've gone through so much. I mean, your career with playing and coaching. So I thought what we'd do is we'd split it up into two segments. We'll start talking about. Uh, we'll go through the playing days first, and again, a lot of people maybe know you more as a coach, the younger generation. So you again, like to, to dive into this because maybe you don't realize what, what a player you really were coming through the organizations. But growing up in Toronto, you played in the Marlboro organization before you got to the Waxers and Marlies. Just walk us through some of those early days playing for some of those teams.
2: Uh, well, you know, what? I grew up uh, a Marley from midget and juvenile yeah. and uh, was really blessed with some tremendous teammates. And We pretty well all moved up together. We went up to Junior B together, and there was no Tier 2 at the time, and uh, we won everything there. And then we brought 15 guys up, uh, I think, to the next year to the the Marlies Junior A, and we won the Memorial Cup, only losing seven games in regulation, I think, um, during that year. Um, Then two years later with the Marlies, we won the Memorial Cup again, um, which – You know, at the time, it's funny, when you're growing up, uh, you think you're winning is just that's what you're supposed to do. It's just going to come easy. You didn't realize when you get to the NHL, it's a whole different animal. Or when you get professional, it's a whole different animal. And um, I probably uh, didn't take care of myself as well as I I should have back in those days or trained as much as as I should have. And, you know, was drafted by the Leafs, which I was completely grateful for and um but never really stuck uh with them and uh um as and i never asked for a trade or nothing because i every time i got sent down i just thought okay i'm going to be a leaf eventually a leaf eventually and it never really took place uh for the you know for my my career type thing but um uh, again in 87 Um, Gord Stellick traded for me I give him crap all the time um, because I had an option year and he never even asked me if I wanted it so I mean that uh, but it was great playing with uh, Rick as a teammate Um, I used to watch him and Billy Derlego and John Anderson they were one of the best lines in the NHL back then and um, when they ever let me get on the ice uh, because they took all the ice time up those three I, I would do my best to to be a Leaf
0: well, I want to go back to the, 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 those, some of those junior teams because, again, people may not appreciate how good they were and how, how deep you were in talent. That Waxer Junior B team was voted the best team of 25 years for the Metro Junior B League uh, at the time for them and probably still is probably one of the strongest teams ever. There's a funny story that you told about your book about the scoring race, the last game of the season. And maybe you want, when there's three of you guys within nine or ten points of the top of the scoring race, and the coach played you guys all together. Maybe you want to pick up on that one. I think you know what I'm referring to.
2: Yeah, no, I know exactly what you were <laughs> referring to. Um, it was it was funny. You, you think you're close. You got one game left, and you're within nine points of the scoring <laughs> league. Uh, but I think Richmond Hill, which had the leading scorer, um, they had finished their season. We had one more game against St. Michael's, and so – I played on a line with Dennis Rook. I don't know who the other winger was. and
0: John Stewart, uh, I think it was, played with you guys. Yeah,
2: yeah. And all three of us were centers. We were all sort of going uh, for that uh, title. And we had, me and Dennis both had nine points with about five minutes to go in the game. And um, I remember getting a breakaway. Or, and, and I went around the net, okay, waited for Dennis to come back in the slot gave him the puck, he scores, okay, so we both equalize the points, okay. Uh, with about two minutes, we're back out there again. We're tied now for the the scoring championship, and we're ahead of the other guy. And um, uh, we have a two-on-one, and he fakes to give it to me, and he shoots, and he scores, and he wins the <laughs> wins <a> scoring championship. <laughs> so we were always pretty good rivals after that because um, – that summer i initially got traded for marcal to london that's and right and they vetoed the trade because it was a bad uh we did it within the 24 hours of the draft or something and so it was vetoed and so they made a new trade and they traded marook instead so marook went to london and i was lucky enough to stay with the Marleys. so uh it was always that one thing with me and dennis we're now good friends so it's it's uh, it's all okay
0: well, so your first year playing at the Mar Yeah, I was going to talk about that, Mark Howard, Troy. People don't realize that, that that sort of came about as a result of that. So you could have ended up very easily in London. Well, uh,
1: I, I got drafted by the Marleys as well. Did you really? Yeah. In uh, 19... What was it? 15. 76? <laughs>
0: 75 <laughs> or
1: 76, I think. Mm. And, uh, but I decided to go to Sherbrooke because I was from PEI and we had a choice and uh i think they won the memorial cup the year before that too as well and uh, they they
2: were in the memorial cup against us oh sure they were it was but oh, they didn't yeah. win it and i heard you just wanted to learn french so you went over there
1: yeah <laughs> well my dad my father was french he never taught me one word well actually i knew a few words that i heard him say but i i knew i found out later on exactly what they meant but uh no, no, it had nothing to do with the frenzy. It was going to a place – well, I was the fourth overall pick by Sherbrooke, too, so that made a big difference. And going to a place of 90,000 instead of 2.5 million or whatever Toronto was at the time. Uh, but And also Toronto had a heck of a team still. I mean, they had some good players. And, you know, I thought, I, you know, maybe I'm better off going to Sherbrooke. I'll get a better chance to play a little bit
0: more. So, Gabby, that first year with the Marty's. I mean, it's one of those – for a hockey player coming up in Toronto, it would have been almost, uh, and again, anybody in this situation be almost a pinch me moment. You're like a dream season here. You're playing on a super hockey club. You guys play the Russians, the Moscow selects uh, game seven against Peterborough in front of sold out arenas. Uh, and you win the Memorial cup. I mean, just walk us through. I mean, and I mean, it was a long way from playing at Markham arena highway seven and Markham road.
2: Well, we had such a good team. I mean, uh, um, you had Peter Marin centered, uh, who was a second round pick centered Paul Ann Bordelow, who was a first round pick Mark Howe, who's a hall of famer. Wayne Dillon was a first round pick. He centered Glenn Goldup, who was a first round pick and Kevin Devine, who Rick knows well from PEI. I think he was a, a second round pick. I mean, we had Marty Howe in defense Bob Daly, Mike Palmatier and net. We were just, we were just loaded. And, uh, it was so much fun playing there. We, we won uh the final game in the Memorial Cup. We won 9 to 1. Um, Mark Howe got 5 points and
0: um Didn't uh, he play defense in that game?
2: No, no. No, he didn't Did start. He, he didn't start playing defense till I think till pro. He never played. He was left winger uh With on Dylan. our team. Yeah. And he was just so good. He was just, you know, he was sickly good. He played defense, maybe on the power play. That's
0: what it was, and he you know, got a pile. Of points.
2: And then he got a pile of points. But I mean, um, just a great player, great guy. Uh, in that game, in the th- in the um, in the final game, uh, George Armstrong, who was tremendous human and our coach, uh, he got uh, he went in between periods for a smoke. Because they did that back then, he got locked in the room. We didn't even know he was missing for the first five minutes of the second period. He came out, we had scored two goals, and he asked if he wants us to go in back in again.
0: (laughs) Well, and the thing he used to do that team. I mean, you seven guys scored thirty goals, and Mm. and he used to play the third and fourth line guys, guys he didn't play very much in the power play, so he get ice time. Or you guys would have scored more goals.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that's probably how I scored over 30 that year. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: now again, a couple of years later, you hook up with a kid by the name of Mark Napier who p- plays on the, one of your sides, and you guys have another run. Uh, do you, mean you just how, how did you feel about all that walking through that again?
2: Well, again, that was sort of uh, it was easy. Uh, we just scored like, I mean, uh, our second line of John, uh, John Tanelli, John Smirk and John Anderson all had 50 goals. I mean, uh, Napier had 66 goals. I had 68. And, I mean, I think we played half of our games then in Brantford. And we averaged over 10 goals a game offensively against Brantford. So it was a lot – Was you know, there was not a lot of defense that we had to play. But we – but, we, you know, we just – we were pretty good. You know, I mean, don't like to – to brag, but a, a machine when it came to scoring goals. I mean, the final game, we won 7-3 in the Memorial Cup this time. And um, it was – it was it, we played a great team um, in Medicine Hat or New Westminster. But, I mean, uh, at that point in time, we were just the best team
0: going. Now, you guys – now, you lost John Tonelli when he signed as an entry yeah. to the WHA. Now, did, did you get approached that year to jump too?
2: Um I got approached one year to um, – yeah, Gus Pedelli was my agent, and he said, no, it would be better if you stayed. I think mm-hmm. it was the year before when Mark Howe left
0: mm-hmm. and
2: Tom Edger and a couple of – Marty Howe and Dylan. a few other – Dylan left. And um, no, uh, he said that – I was approached um, uh, as well, but uh, he uh, – Gus said it would be better, like I said, to to play junior one more year. Um, and it probably was cause I had a great year and, if I hadn't gone streaking that one day, I probably well, would have been a lot better. <laughs>
0: we're going to get into that story. We're, we're going to get into that story because that story a lot of people don't know that. Now, you guys were also known as... No, That's right? good.
2: I, I'm glad they don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a beauty. But actually, there's a learning point in this I, I'm going to get to. But I, I was going to Seneca at the time. Well, actually, we, we went to Seneca. We didn't say we went to school. We said we went to Seneca. But the hangout was the Jolly Miller for the Seneca students until your hockey club showed up. And then it'd be like the parting of the ways. And it was almost like you guys played like champions, but you party like champions too. And you guys definitely had the run of the younger sect in Toronto.
2: Well, we certainly did it all together too, because we had, uh, it's usually a Wednesday night. We uh, we made it a mandatory team Jolly Miller night. And uh, um, yeah, that's, uh, I don't want to talk about those days. That was good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we get, no, you just did. That was enough. Now there's, now we just touched on, when You guys were celebrating, uh, you know, your Memorial Cup win, and you guys made that sort of move to go to Ontario Place one night. And you guys, maybe you want to pick the story up from here.
2: Well, it's a really crazy story, actually. I mean, but in 1975 76, streaking was really in, yes, if, it was for people that are of the younger uh persuasion. And uh, there was a song Ray Stevens sang The Streak, which was number one, um, but. I had never done it. Everybody on the team had done it except me. And we were at the Edelweiss in uh, Ontario, Miss- Place. At Ontario, Ontario Place, Place. And there's two bathrooms. And one was at one end, one was at the other end. And we had put in about a 10-hour shift. And I said, guys, <laughs> it's time to streak. And Napier said no. Mike Kitchen said no. Then they said, okay, we'll do it. So we went from the one bathroom, and uh, there was a one. There was a little stage where a guy had a drum and um, a, and a couple extra instruments and everything else. And I tripped over the stage and put my head through the drum uh, <laughs> on stage. Walked, got up, started shaking my head. The drum came off. They couldn't believe it. We started laughing our heads off. Went to the other bathroom quickly, put on our clothes, but. Little did we know that there was two plainclothes cops there and uh, they caught us for indecent exposure. And the, but the funny part, well, they, the charges were dropped uh, in the end, but the funny part is we're leaving um, the police station and we're sitting there going, now, nobody say anything. Our goaltender's dad is the chief of detectives. We'll get this thing all straightened around and nobody will know. We'll keep it to ourselves This was two weeks before the draft, by the way. And um, so my dad phones me at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I can't tell you the expletives that were flying (laughs) from his mouth. My mom never went to work for four days, and it was front page in red letters in the Toronto Star. And I went, oh, my God, this is what's going on now. And uh, um, it just goes to prove, you know, stay on the uppity up. Uh, Everybody's watching.
0: Well, the thing that for the young listeners is this, and, it, and this is something you touched on, and this is the serious side of it, that you started that year uh, ranked probably in the top 15 for junior players for the draft. And by the playoffs, I think you were in the top five. And you ended up going in the third round. And, this, and the other guys that you were with already had contracts or were all set to play. And you were the one guy that was basically exposed, so to speak, excuse the pun.
2: <laughs> no, it, it was crazy because we had a meeting um, – my agent who at this time now was Alan Eagleson and me. And he said, Oakland was going to take me third. They had me number two on their list, but they were going to take me third. Then we had a team party uh, with the leaf management and John McClellan, the late John McClellan said they were going to draft, the Leafs were going to draft me seventh. And um, um, but they didn't think I'd be there. And then it was a phone draft so nobody knew anything because the nhl was trying to hide who they were picking from the wha at that time mm-hmm. and so when i went 42nd i was like in total tears and shock and everything else um but it is what it is i did the stupid thing and it ended up costing me
0: yeah and i said that's that's the whole point point. and uh, you know today's day and age was squid imagine some of the guys you play with if they were living in today, they, but they wouldn't have lasted a week. Some a of the stuff odd. you're coming on with some of your guys, including me. <laughs> well, I, was try, I was trying to be nice here. We wanted to include you.
2: Well, you know what, when Rick, uh, uh, when he went underage to Birmingham, um, I'm sure there's some pretty good stories. What, what was going on in Alabama where they didn't know anything about hockey, uh, when you were young and, uh, uh, and it was a good crew with you, too. So I'm sure it was a lot of fun. It, it was a blast. And
1: uh, I'm not going to get into any specifics, but uh, when you got Hartsburg and Rammer and Gingra and Goulet and Pat Riggan, all of us, and Louis Slager, we're all 19, 18 years old. It was like, I mean, you're in Alabama where nobody knows who the heck you are. Hockey's not a big thing there. It's It's Alabama football there. And so – you know, we didn't even think about it. We could pretty much do whatever we wanted to do, because nobody knew who we were, and it didn't matter. And uh, unfortunately, we did. And uh, you know, but we never got we never got caught. If we went streaking, we never would have got caught, guy, because nobody mm-hmm. would have kn- known who we were.
2: We learned a lot of life lessons when we were young, <laughs> I'll tell you.
0: We did. So you, and so Gabby, you then, you know, so you opt and you can't come to an agreement with the Maple Leafs. So you end up going and playing for Minnesota and WHA. So what was mm-hmm. your, so, and then you end up in Johnstown. So we had Dave Hansen on last week and uh, he talked, he talked about the movie and talked about playing in the minors. I believe you guys were roommates at one time.
2: Yeah, I probably wasn't the best roommate for anybody to have, but, um, uh, it was me, Dave Hansen, and Paul Holmgren all lived in the same place. I remember coming home at about three o'clock one morning and, uh, knocking on the door. Cause I would, I forgot my keys or something. And Paul Holmgren just looked at me and he said, your priorities are in the wrong direction. And he was only 19 at the time. And little did I know the next year, he got called up to Philadelphia right away. I got called up to the Leafs and the first game I played was Philly and, and, uh, Paul hit me so hard and then started punching me. So I guess I wasn't a good roommate for him. And uh, he got five and 10 and I got nothing. And I remember his one punch lifting me right off the ground and, or off the ice. And uh, you can still see it on YouTube. It's, uh, it's Paul Holmgren's hit on Bruce Boudreaux or something. And uh, and, and then – but the only thing that ticked me off is – we got a five-minute power play. I got punched in the head, and I didn't get on – didn't get a chance to to get on the ice. That's the only thing that bothered me about that.
0: Well, now, now talk about going from playing the Marlies, where you guys were sort of the king of the league, king of Canada. I mean, you guys were it. And now you're going to – you're playing in Minnesota and WHA. Some of the buildings were not full. It was being put in nicely. And then you start playing in the minor leagues. How was that adjustment for you at that time?
2: It was sort of tough. I mean, it really was. I mean, I was still – Uh, very immature Um, and I I, I didn't get it I didn't get that that I should be you know uh, uh, working harder to get where I wanted to go especially when I went down to Johnstown I mean I I I think again like in that league I, I think I played 34 games and had 68 points or something and it was to me it was just so easy I didn't I didn't um take it seriously and the only reason I stayed there and my agent could have signed me with the Leafs right away and I could have gone to Oklahoma City and started to learn my, my craft which nowadays I was really I'm really if when I look back on history that's the thing that bugs me the most but he said hey they're making a movie you know you get a chance to be in a movie why don't you stay there we'll sign you with the Leafs in the summer and we'll go from there and obviously the movie was Slapshot which yep. is a pretty iconic movie. Didn't realize it was going to be that way, but at the same time, uh, it was uh, it was fun making it, and it's great memories. But career wise, wasn't the best move.
1: Now, uh, Gabby, I, I think yeah. you know, I, <laughs> I think for young players today, I think what you said was probably one of the things mm-hmm. I think that they should listen to more than anything. Absolutely, also. because I was in the same situation. You're nineteen years old, you turn professional you're immature you're not you you know you're not thinking about anything except you know i'm I'm in professional hockey now and and basically you're not taking it very seriously so you know for young guys today I think they have to realize that to get to where you have to go or where you want to go, you better take it very very seriously and and uh you know not be out till three or four in the morning and and partying it up. And, I mean, we all did it at our age uh, back in those days. And a lot of times a lot of guys got away with it. Some guys didn't, unfortunately. But today it's completely different.
2: Yeah, you can't do that today. I mean, everybody, they work out 12 months a year. They might take two weeks off. Uh, And you know what? It's an interesting story is that um, it's like all these junior kids and college kids, they only think of the NHL. They don't think of the East Coast League, the American League. So when they get sent down, I mean, they have no idea how good, how many good hockey players are. I mean, you know, you get sent down from you score 50 goals in junior and you go to the East Coast League, you're devastated, and then you think you're going to rip the league up, and you don't because the players, there's so many good hockey players in this world right now that you have to do those little things. You have to work out, you have to pay attention and you have to be uh, a a good example, or they just get rid of you. It's the same as the American league. I've had so many guys when I was coaching in the American league get sent down to me and go, Oh man. And what am I doing here? I'm so good. And they can't even compete in the American league. Which
1: brings me to another question about you, Gabby, you coached in all those leagues as well. Um, I think one of the things that that they don't realize as well is that they got to play to their strengths, you know. And uh, I remember when you and I played together in Toronto, for instance, and I think we only dressed 19, I think, back then, right? We we never dressed 20.
2: Um, I, I couldn't tell you. I can't remember that. Uh, uh,
1: we, but we did, but. Uh, If
2: it was, I was the 19th player, then I'll tell you that. That's <laughs> well, all that, I know.
1: That's what I was getting at is that, uh, times have changed. Back then, when someone got hurt up front, a forward, they just called up the best player from the American League. It didn't matter who it was. It just, we're calling up the best player, which was usually you. And, but you weren't put in a situation to succeed. You were put on a, a, with two guys that, you know, like, for instance, uh, Mike and I spoke about it. What about yeah. 1976? when uh, Harold was upset with Daryl and Lanny wasn't playing very well. What if they had to put you between Errol Thompson and Lanny McDonald and giving you an opportunity to play, let's say 20 games with those guys? How would things have turned out, you know? And, you know, now when a top six guy gets hurt, they call up a top six. When a bottom six guy gets hurt, they don't call up the best player. They call up a bottom six guy because Mm -hmm. he knows how to play that role.
2: A hundred percent.
1: And it wasn't that way when, when you
2: played with us in Toronto. No, because my two big right wingers were Paul Higgins and Kurt Walker. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They were. And, I mean, I'm sitting there trying to dangle, and uh, i got to tell you, they really weren't danglers that I was playing with. <laughs>
0: well, we talked about Paul Higgins the other day, and as uh, Squid pointed out, he showed up at training camp one year without his skates. So I don't think we need to say any more. Right there, I think that kind of I think that kind of sums it all up right there in that little story. Now speaking with the Leafs, I mean, obviously you went through a period of eight nine years. I mean, you and I spoke a a year ago. You talked about that those were great years for you, and you wouldn't want to be anywhere else, even though you were going up and down, being a Toronto guy. But how was that for you, really? Like going up and down, the frustration you must have felt, being a prolific scorer like you were, not playing with the right guys, and. Let's take it even one step further to the, the day you got that call to come to the Maple Leafs. How did it feel?
2: Oh, when I got the call to come to the Leafs, I was ecstatic. I mean, just uh, over the moon. It was like getting the call to coach the Washington Capitals, quite frankly.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Which we're going to get into.
2: Yeah, to be in Toronto, was uh, uh, to play in Toronto was uh, was all I ever – dreamed of since I was four years old so I mean it was uh uh to be able to put the blue and white on and sit in the room and and uh just get ready to play Red Kelly was my first coach up there and um uh other than having pyramids under the bench we were doing okay it was it was <laughs> a fun time
0: well no but I mean now you were blue and white all your most of your career I mean as a young yeah. kid playing junior and you so you were well well known in the city of Toronto in the hockey world and the hockey community. Just take us through that day. You about how you kind of touched on it, but stepping on that ice, like the difference between that Maple Leaf sweater and even played it later as a junior, walking into the gardens.
2: Just the warm up, looking at the crowd, um, the atmosphere with the lights. I mean, I'll, I still remember just skating around. I don't know if I touched the puck the first warm up that I went in because <laughs> I was just looking, and people, you know, that I'd known were waving to me, and you tried not to uh, to react. Uh, I remember a couple of years later, I reacted to somebody and Mike Nikolic, um wouldn't, didn't dress me, took my stuff off. He says, if you're not interested in being serious, you know, that was my way, though. I was just, I was so pumped up that that, uh, uh, that was, that was what I remember is the lights, the bright lights skating around in our half of the ice in Maple Leaf Gardens. And, and uh, that, and that was, that was the, the pinnacle for me.
0: Now, what about uh, how did the players treat you when you're, you got called up? They they obviously knew of you. Did anybody take you under their wing or help you out?
2: I mean, I don't think they took me under my wing. I remember things were going pretty good at the uh, when I finally got called up. And the one day that that it the, probably the first day that it really registered with me about being ready and working hard and everything was um, I uh, I was going well and. Uh, we had a practice and I came off the ice as soon as practice was over. Daryl Sittler came running after me, grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. And he said, listen, kid, if you ever want to make it, I'm the best player on this team. I'm the first guy on the ice and I'm the last guy off the ice. That's how you make it. Not by what you're doing. And I just sat there big eyed, buggy eyed, whatever you want to call it. And said, Wow. That's that's what you do, and I mean it really resonated with me. And uh, you know, I've tried to explain that to an awful lot of young kids uh, um, that I've coached since then. But I mean, it was uh, it was a powerful message for me.
0: Well, I'm going to get Squid involved in this next one, and again, you've you just briefly touched on it. Now, going from. Being well known in the cities we just we just talked about to wearing that maple leaf, what was the difference then as your acceptance or the way people looked at you in the city after that? And maybe Squid, you can jump in too, like coming from Vancouver.
2: I don't understand. Uh,
0: well, I mean, from difference from being a hockey player in Toronto where everybody knew you. Now you're wearing that maple leaf crest. And when you walk around the city and people approach you, what was the like just the the magnitude that people put this the, the pedestal they put this? Well, they
2: they put every player that wears a Leaf uniform on a pedestal. And uh, when you'd go into a restaurant, you could see the people looking at you and saying, that's that's him, that's him. Uh, um, and which is why probably more than any city, even though there are, you know, there's a handful of cities in the NHL now, uh, Toronto is the one where you're looked at uh, with a fine tooth comb. Like everybody knows everybody. I mean, there's people in Toronto that don't know hockey, but there's not a lot of them. Rick would be like
1: Toronto, Montreal, I would have to say, are probably the two cities where, uh, you would be noticed the most. And it, Bruce is right. I mean, you go into a restaurant and you can hear them whispering at, at the next table and a couple of tables over and, you know, Oh, there's so and so there's so and so the only good, the good part about that was sometimes the guys that own the restaurant would give you the free meal, which, uh, which all was always nice too. But, um, you know what? It was, it was good, but but it was it was a little bit of a, it, it was an eye opener, and and it was kind of one of those things that kind of brought you down to earth too. You kind of you were you, you know because you're in the clouds. I mean you're you're, you're in uh, Toronto. You're playing at Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, as Bruce said, especially when uh, Saturday nights when the TV lights are on and they're so bright. And then you're out in restaurants, people will recognize you. And it's like, you know, holy cow, like, you know, I'm in Toronto. I'm in the Mecca of hockey and I better, I better keep my nose clean and uh, do the best I can. And uh, I mean, it wakes you up in a hurry.
0: That's for sure. Well, Gabby, um, just along those lines, what, uh, you know, again, being a Toronto kid, we keep referring to, what were some of your more memorable moments? I've actually just crushed question before, moments as a Maple Leaf, maybe your first goal, like the Islander win, anything, your first game? Well,
2: my first goal was, was great because uh, it was a 6-0 win, and I got the sixth goal, but it was a, a pass from Randy <laughs> Carlisle, and it was a breakaway from our blue line in, and I put it over Jimmy Rutherford's shoulder. Um, I thought it was – I, I was so happy, um, you know, The when we beat the Islanders in 79, uh, and I wasn't playing that game, but I remember I was in the front row. I was doing stats for uh, Roger, and I jumped over the railing. <clears throat> I thought I was only about four foot. It was about a 15-foot drop, and I nearly killed myself. <laughs> but I couldn't wait to run down there, jump on the ice, jump on all the guys, and uh, I thought that was a tremendous moment. And, but you know what? One of the best moments was um, uh, there was a game against Montreal and I got on the ice and I and I got the puck <laughs> and I, I deked out Serge Savard and I scored over Dryden's shoulder and to tie the game 2-2 and the next day they were talking about it in the paper. But my brother was the front page of the Globe and Mail because he was playing a public or, or a uh, uh, elementary school soccer game and they had a picture of him so it was me in the in the sports pages and my son uh, my brother on the on the front page uh, front page of the globe I always thought my, that was my dad's proudest moment and I'll never forget the look on his face on that day and uh, that was probably as good a moment as I'll have
0: well, that's a pretty good one and uh, so I mean you know you you. you played, I think, in pretty much every league in existence. You had a long, long minor league career. I mean, was there a point in time you were at the top of scoring in every team you played on? Was there a point in time when you just sort of looked at yourself in the mirror and just said, you know what? I know I can produce, but the show is just not going to happen on a regular basis and just make do with what you have?
2: No, never. I always thought, and this is a true story, Mm -hmm. I thought uh, even when I was 35, 36, and 37, (laughs) I was going to get a chance. And the reason I thought that, was because there was a player that was a rookie that St. Louis called up in 68 or 69 named Connie Madigan. And he was a tough guy, but he made his rookie debut at 38 years old. So I always thought it's like a a scene at a, a um, um, what's that, the Jim Carrey uh, comedy when he's dumber and dumber, Dumb, when he said, there, so you're saying there's a chance, right? <laughs> and that's that's exactly what I kept thinking. And I kept holding on to that dream that there was a chance. And I mean, my last three years at 36, 37, 38, I had 109, 120, and 90 points. So I, I was still going pretty good. And uh, uh, it, I was asked that summer to coach. Uh, the draft was in Quebec, and I uh, met the – I forget his name right now. He's the GM of Cleveland and uh, uh, Larry Gordon. And uh, he asked me if I wanted a coach, and they were going to offer me a three year contract. Well, once you hit in your mid 20s and you're a minor leaguer, you get one year contracts. And the first time you have a bad year, they don't sign you anymore. Yeah. So I thought this is a three year deal. At thirty-two thousand a year, I was making millions, and uh, th- that's what I thought at the time. And um, so I accepted it, and it was coaching in the Colonial League in Muskegon, Michigan. But uh, it was uh, uh, even though I wanted to play, I didn't think I'd get another chance to go from playing to coaching all in one step. There would be some sort of wait in between, and I didn't ever want to wait.
0: Well, Squid. Gabby is sure one of the all time characters of the game, isn't he?
1: <laughs> I mean, you know what? He's so entertaining. Uh and and then you go through his whole career and how fabulous he was as a minor league player. And even when he got to the NHL, which was only a few times, yeah. You know, he had some good times and then not so good times, but um, a lot of that had to do with who he was playing with too. But if you look at him in the minor leagues, like outstanding. I mean, he's probably in the top five scoring in every season that he's ever played in the minors. And uh, you know, and then I mean, he's a lifer. He, he's a he's a just a, a through and through hockey guy. That uh, and I can't wait till the next episode because then we're going to get into the coaching part. And he's going to give us a lot of insight into coaching in the National Hockey League. So I'm excited about that.
0: Well, he, uh, I mean, the thing about him, and, and for the young listeners out there that are playing the game of hockey, take some solace and, and some direction from what was, turned out to be the streaking incident, which was a, a funny, funny episode everybody was doing it at the time. It was kind of the creative thing to do. And what turned out to be kind of an innocent, dumb prank may have cost him a top five billing in the NHL draft, which also takes away from him an opportunity to maybe start at an NHL level with really good players to start with, as opposed to working your way back up the chain. So, and this was all done before social media. Uh, it was a very innocent prank, as I said. And just like the old saying goes, where if you're any good, they'll find you. Well, if there's any dirt, they'll find that too now. So take some take some of this away from you. use it as a learning lesson. And what I love about Gabby, uh, again, is the fact that he never used any of that as an excuse or, no. or leaned on or whined about it. He just moved forward. He knew he made a mistake. He knew he liked to live hard, like a lot of the players did back in those days. And he just made do with what he had. No. And I- oh, really?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I think... But I think what he's been able to do, he's been able to transform that. And we'll hear this on the next episode, which he's very, very, he gets very clear about how he relates that to players today.
1: Yeah. And, you know, when you think back at what happened, that incident, and he wouldn't have been a Maple Leaf. He wouldn't have got drafted by the Maple Leafs. He would have got drafted by a team like L.A. or somebody who, at the time, were not as good as the Maple Leafs were. Therefore, Gabby probably would have got a chance to play first or second-line centerman, uh, maybe not right away, uh, but there's no question that he would have gotten that opportunity. And then who knows what his career might have been like after that.
0: And, you know, and, and you're right. Well, look at his buddy Dennis Marook, who he played with. And, I mean, they, they did the swap for him for House. So, I, I mean, all part of that. And Marouk got an opportunity to play with California and moved on and had a very successful career. So, but. Uh, as Bill
1: Waters always said, if ifs and buts were candies and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. So,
0: And that's the whole thing we've got to take from it. But anyway, we do, um, you know, just, uh, you know, we, we love talking to Gabby. Uh, next week I think you're going to enjoy the coaching segment because he does get into it and in some of the philosophies and what he's learned and it's why he's so successful, what he does. So we'd like to thank the Hockey News, your source, for all things pertaining to the game since 1947. Go to thn.com slash deal for your subscription to the hockey news today. Follow us at Squid and the Ultimate Leaf fan on Twitter, the Ultimate Leaf fan on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course Rick vibe on Instagram. Follow us. Don't be shy. Send us your comments, questions, any thoughts you may have about the show or who you might like to see come yeah. on the show and join us someday. Um That would I mean, be nice. Rick, you want to close anything off, but uh, but before we let them go?
1: no I, I'm, uh, I'm just looking forward to the next one, because uh, I, I coach myself. I got into coaching after I played. It, it's It's completely different than being a player. There's a lot of, a lot more responsibility. and I'm really interested in looking into and listening to what he has to say because he's had a great coaching career, and uh, from all the way from the uh, ECHL all the way to the American League and the National Hockey League. So
0: uh, I'll leave it at
1: that. I can't wait to hear him talk about coaching.
0: Okay, great, guys, and we'll talk to you next week. Tune in.